the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. That sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Okay. Well, hopefully that's the end of that. This morning, we come to the final passage in our study of the tongue, which we started back in James chapter 3 and verse 1. I think it would help us to read the passage up until verse 8 or through verse 8, and we'll start this morning looking at verses 9 through 12. So join me in James chapter 3, and I'll review in verses 1 through 8. James writes, "'Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways.' If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things." See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life as in, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So again, by way of review, we began in verse 1 by looking at the warning that Christians should think twice before becoming teachers of God's Word because of the stricter judgment. The stricter judgment is made all the more frightful because of the tendency for all men, not just teachers and not just those who desire to teach, but all men, all women, to sin with their words. So much so that James says that anyone who is able to control his speech, control his tongue, is a perfect man, complete, spiritually mature, because the highest degree of self-control in the Christian life will be necessary for the tongue to control the tongue. So the reasoning goes that if you can master that, you can master everything else, and as a believer, probably have by that point if you have that amount of self-control. James went on to give us several illustrations that we just read of how something small, a bit, a rudder, and a small fire can control or destroy much, the horse, the ship in the raging seas, and a forest. He used that last illustration, that of the forest fire, to tell us that the tongue is the very world of iniquity. It defiles our whole body and sets on fire with the fires of hell the entire course of our life. And the reason for this 
is because unlike every species of animal that has been tamed by man, no man can tame his own tongue, which is a problem for many because of the power of the tongue, which is evil, he says, and full of deadly poison. And this morning, we continue looking at the dangers of speech, specifically by addressing the doubleness or the duality of the tongue that is inconsistent for the man or woman of God. Follow along as I read verses 9 through 12 of James chapter 3. Speaking of the tongue, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. This morning I want to give you three concerns regarding the duality of the tongue, the doubleness of the tongue that we have seen in this passage and we will unpack. Three concerns regarding the duality, the dual nature of the tongue. The first, right off the bat, we'll see why this is a problem. And that is our first concern, the problem of duality. The problem of duality. Again, in verse 9, James writes, With it, it being the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Right there, we see what he's trying to do. We see that there are two things, one good, one bad, and he says the same thing produces both. This is not a good thing, brethren, he says. In the Christian life, when we look at the big picture, when we look at ourselves, when we look at this church, when we look at the world as a whole, we can simplify things into a clear distinction, Christian or non-Christian, holy or profane. And although it may seem like an oversimplification when we try to take that dichotomy into the everyday decisions that we have to make, we understand that that exists. You are either for God or against Him. And even in those everyday decisions, we know that we wrestle through those decisions and choices because we understand that there is a battle that exists because we are trying to do what honors the Lord and not which dishonors Him. That is the very essence of the choice that we make dozens of times every day. And when it comes to our speech, the issue is no different. And what James sets up for us here is the clear duality or doubleness of the tongue, created and saved to serve God with every aspect of our lives, yet often doing the opposite with our speech. So, he says, with the same tongue, with the same mouth, we bless God, and often, even in the same breath, we go on to curse men. So, on the one hand, you have the highest form of speech, the ultimate privilege of the tongue to bless God. To bless God simply means to praise God, to honor God with our speech, with our words. Remember, James is speaking to those who were raised as faithful, devout Jews who have since converted to Christianity. For the devout Jew... Back then, there were 18 eulogies or recited praises 
and they had to recite all 18 of these three times a day. And each time they recited one, they would end it with these words, Blessed be thou, O God. So the idea of blessing God was familiar to the Jews, at least in their recitation of these verses. In fact, the Greek word for bless that we have here is where we get the English word eulogy or eulogize. That English word means to praise or commend. It can refer to a speech or something written that praises something or someone which explains why you are probably most familiar with the eulogy in the context of a funeral service in which someone gives the speech that speaks highly of the deceased and his or her accomplishments. And here, the word to bless or praise the Lord and Father reminds us of the most important thing we are to do with our speech. The idea of man blessing God is found actually very often in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see that the Israelites were frequently told to bless the Lord your God. And a lot of times that can be confusing because we understand that we are blessed by God. And so we see that as God giving us something good comes in all sorts of forms. You say, I've been blessed by God by, with a raise. I've been blessed by God with these children. I've been blessed by what a blessing from God that we have technology. And so sometimes in our logic, it seems strange. Well, how do we give something like that to God? But the good we give him is honoring him, worshiping him. And that's what it means when it says, when the Israelites are commanded, bless the Lord your God. Praise him, worship him, honor him. It's found in many places, but one that sticks out is in the well-known Psalm of Thanksgiving, Psalm 103, six times. David says, bless the Lord over and over again as he meditates on what he wants to thank God for. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, three times. Then bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. And bless the Lord, all you works of his. That's just in one psalm. And when we look at the Hebrew word that is translated bless, it means to bless, of course, but it also has a connotation of kneeling, which gives us a picture of that honor and reverence that we are to give to the Lord. And as believers today, we do this. We know this. Every time we sing His praises, we bless the Lord. Every time we recognize His goodness with the giving of thanks, even with simple phrases like praise God, we bless the Lord. Every time we pray with a sincere heart, we bless the Lord. Every time we say amen in response to truth, we bless the Lord. And as believers, we mean it. We truly love Him. Our speech is reflecting that which is truly in our hearts. But therein lies the problem, because on the other hand, with that same tongue, with that same capacity for blessing, James says, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The opposite of blessing is cursing. And just as blessing is the highest form of speech, so cursing is the lowest. Now, I want to make clear that James is not referring here to what we would call cursing in our modern English. That is profanity, bad words. That's not what he's talking about here. But 
when you understand the profane and vile nature of our type of cursing, you can understand why we call four-letter words cursing in the context of the bigger picture of how James uses it here. Cursing is to speak negatively of other people. It is most accurately calling down wrath or curses upon someone, which people actually did in the Old Testament. But you can talk about any form of sinful speech because we see here that James is simply setting up that which is holy speech and that which is speech that is dishonoring to God. A cursing is clearly condemned in Scripture. Rather than, rather than cursing those who curse you, we are told to bless those who curse us. And we know this from Luke chapter 6 in the context of loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you. In the same vein, Paul says in Romans twelve fourteen that believers are to, quote, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now notice, back in James chapter 3, he does not say, that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and then with it we also curse our Lord and Father. Because we don't do that as Christians. What we tend to practice is blessing God with our tongues, while what James says here is also cursing men with our tongues. But he still sees that as a problem, even though we don't curse God. He almost sets up cursing men as the opposite of blessing God. And he specifies that when we do that, we are cursing those who have been made in the likeness of God. And that's very important to understand. Because that phrase, likeness of God, brings us all the way back to creation. When God made Adam and Eve in his image and set man above the rest of the animal kingdom. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I'll read that for you. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And being made in the image of God or the likeness of God has been often misunderstood as a physical likeness. But what it really is, although we are finite and comparatively modest, is a likeness of intelligence, reasoning, morality, emotions, self-consciousness that animals simply do not have. And the point is this. We cannot praise God with our speech while also cursing the representation of God, man, with our speech. The doubleness or duality that James is addressing here in regard to the tongue is actually a problem that he's addressed throughout James so far. You remember in chapter 1, verse 8, he talked about the double-minded man who believes in God enough to ask for something in prayer, but then has doubt that God will do it or can do it. In chapter 2, we talked about the man who has faith in our glorious Lord, yet belittles fellow Christians through favoritism, duality. And later in chapter 2, we saw him address the one who professes faith, but has no works, thus showing his faith is not genuine. And now in chapter 3, he talks of the one whose tongue blesses the Lord while curses his likeness. And so we've actually seen James do this several times. It is a main theme throughout James 
addressing the duality, the doubleness of the Christian, which should not be, now, of course, highlighting the tongue. The danger of this, where we bless the Lord, but then we curse man, is brought out for us in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, which highlights an extreme or the extreme of this practice of the tongue. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 say this, if someone says, I love God, there's blessing God, and hates his brother, which is reflected in cursing man, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And to avoid flippantly excusing ourselves by claiming we don't actually hate other Christians, we need to also remind ourselves that one simple, harsh word in anger Jesus Christ says is the same as murder. We see that in Matthew 5.22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You may not use those words, you good for nothing, you fool, but we have our modern equivalents. You understand what that means. You know what your favorite catchphrase is when you're angry and you want to let that out on someone, even if it's under your breath, even if it's behind closed doors. That idiot, that dummy. This not only shows us the dangers of the doubleness of speech that James confronts, but also reminds us that our words emanate from what is in our hearts. And in Jesus' example, what emanates from our hearts is anger that results in insults. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem because this redeemed tongue, you, all of you, your whole body, and everything that comes forth from it, every action, every thought, every emotion, has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and so it should not be that as Christians... We worship and bless the Lord, but then we speak negatively about the representation of God, other people, whether Christians or non-Christians. And that's the problem of duality. In In the next verse, we see our second concern regarding the duality of the tongue, the prohibition of duality, the prohibition of duality. It should go without saying that what he describes in verse 9 should not happen in the lives of believers, from the tongues of believers. And James begins in verse 10 by summarizing what he just said. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. That's just a summary of what he said. I'm going to see if putting that there will help. Okay. The transition is not smooth. That's not helping at all, is it? Back pocket. Just doesn't like me touching it. Is it? I've just made it work. Front pocket. 
that better? Have you noticed that I've been trying to stand still the last 20 minutes? I'm like sweating. And James says, okay, that's, it sounds like that's better. Okay, let's move on. We're in verse 10. He begins by summarizing, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And then he goes on to lovingly say to his fellow Christians, very simply, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Now, although that phrase, it's one word in the Greek, that phrase ought not is only found once in the Scriptures right here. We know from other places in Greek writings, ancient Greek writings, that it is a very strong negative in the Greek. And this prohibition rests in the fact that what he is describing, this duality of the tongue, when you understand the salvation, when you understand who we live for, when we understand what is to be the theme of our lives, it is irrational, it is unreasonable, and it is immoral. For both blessing and cursing to come from the mouth of a Christian is simply unacceptable. It compromises holiness and it assaults righteousness. The bottom line, it's not who you are as a blood-bought, spirit-filled child of the living God. And to be clear, when I say that it is not appropriate, we're talking about both the cursing of men and the duality of the tongue, which in this context are one and the same. Although we struggle with this to some degree, we must be vigilant to make sure that this doesn't happen. We often do this. I I don't think I even need to give examples of this. You know you do this. We all struggle with this. We praise God. We say the highest, loftiest things. Even if we are simply reading or reciting or singing words that are written out for us, we still believe them in our hearts, and so we're blessing the Lord. But then we go on to complain about our bosses or criticize our coworkers. Something that I find has happened frequently within the last few years because of all of the various crazy events of the past few years is among Christians, some Christians, there's actually a decrease in the division between cursing and blessing. And what I mean by this is that there are Christians who curse men and in cursing men believe that they are blessing God by cursing men. You say, I don't understand what you mean by that. How is that possible? By publicly slandering politicians they don't like, who pass laws that go against Christianity. They slander them, they curse them, and they think they are blessing God by doing so. There are Christians who, in the same breath, think they are blessing the Lord by cursing men simply because those men promote views of COVID that those Christians disagree with. Friends, such things ought not to be this way. There should be no cursing at all. James goes on to emphasize the absurdity of this whole thing by giving us some real-life examples to help us see how strange this practice is. This brings us to our third and final concern regarding the duality of the tongue, the paradox of duality. We've seen the problem and the prohibition of duality and now the paradox. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. This is a a simple literary device that he's using, something that's very practical. Sometimes we don't fully grasp someone's point until they take us outside of our own context and use illustrations or comparisons to explain the point they're making. You've heard someone do that and say, no, that seems strange because that's like saying, and then they give some illustration and go like, oh, yeah, that is kind of weird what I'm doing. This is especially true when the point they're making is to condemn or address something that is normal in life and even your life as well as society. And so in an effort to bolster his point about the incompatibility of blessing and cursing coming from the same lips, James now gives us two illustrations from nature. As he always does, he uses illustrations that are appropriate and familiar to his immediate audience. And another literary device we have seen him use that he again uses here is to ask rhetorical questions in which the obvious answer is no. First, he asks if the same fountain can pour forth both fresh and bitter water. Now, fountain here would not be like a man-made fountain used for decorative purposes, like you see in many modern city squares or even in someone's front lawn. What James is referring to is a spring, a natural spring where water flows. That's actually how it's translated as spring in the ESV and NIV. Now, in that day, where you didn't have modern technology, modern indoor plumbing, water treatment plants that push water through pipes of our homes, a natural spring was very important for life and survival, especially in the dry Palestinian climate. So not only would a village or a town rely on water from a spring for survival, oftentimes the discovery of a spring was why a village existed there in the first place. In other words, someone would find a spring, a source of clean water, at least clean by their standards, And because humans and livestock need water to survive, they would say, I'm going to stay and live here. And other people would live there. And they would move their homes and their fields and their marketplaces around that spring. And before you knew it, you had a town or a village. And this is also true because of the very basics of human ingenuity and the fight to survive tell us that if you find fresh water, You want to make it so the distance you need to travel to get to that water is as short as possible. And so they would build towns around these springs. Now, for this to happen, the spring had to be one that sent forth clean water. They wouldn't just see water bubbling from the ground or from a rock and say, let's build a town here. They would test it first to see if it was clean water or if it was bitter water, which refers to salt water. You can't survive on salt water. It may initially feel like it's quenching your thirst, but you will eventually dehydrate and die. Now, it is true that there are some springs, and there were some springs back then, depending on their source or sources, that would have a combination of fresh and salt water coming out of it. And in the context of drinking and surviving, the combination of fresh and salt water is known as salt water. You don't drink it. You avoid it. 
it is still bitter water. But to James's point, what doesn't happen is you find a spring that pours forth fresh water, and then the next day, it's salt water. It does not all of a sudden switch its source from the freshwater river or lake, and then the next day somehow that tunnel shifts a few hundred miles and then gets its source from the saltwater sea or ocean. It just doesn't do that. And more to the point of what he's saying regarding our speech, you will not find a spring that pours forth fresh water for this person, and then the next person in line with this bucket they don't like, and then it pours forth salt water. And what James is illustrating is the blessing and the cursing we saw in previous verses. In other words, just as it is inconceivable to find a spring that pours out purely fresh water one moment and then purely undrinkable, bitter water the next, so it should be inconceivable for the Christian to bless God one moment and then curse someone the next and then gossip about someone the next and then slander or criticize someone the next. The English phrase he uses here, pour out, depending on your translation, pour forth, flow flow from, is a Greek word that means to gush out, to be so full that it is overflowing. And we understand that's true of a spring. The water will only flow out. A spring will only exist if the channel or tunnel leading to it is so full that the water has nowhere to go and it comes out and creates a spring. A fountain. In the same way, we understand that when it pertains to our mouths, we are again reminded of the Lord's words in Matthew 15, where he says that it is out of the heart that sinful and defiling words flow out, gush out, because that is what our hearts are filled with. And so, like that spring water, it will naturally come out of our mouths. We also have Proverbs 4, 23 through 24. Can't talk about speech without looking at a proverb. Proverbs 4, 23 through 24. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Again, sinful speech connected with the springs of life that flow from the heart. The idea of an overflowing or overflowing is a spiritual and practical reality. We understand this even this morning. In our worship, we don't just say, eh, praise God, I guess. We mean it. We may not say it loudly. We may not even say it loud enough for anyone to to hear it, but we surely mean it. We are overwhelmed with His goodness. And we feel it to our very core from which it emanates. But in the same way, we don't just flippantly slander, curse, gossip, or practice any other sinful speech against others. We mean it. We believe it. Even if for a moment we're angry, we're hurt, we're jealous, whatever it may be, Whatever the root, it overflows into words that would fall under the heading of cursing. And the Holy Spirit's 
infinite wisdom in authoring these words through James, we see how his Jewish audience's famed history of wandering through the desert makes this illustration of sweet water over bitter, blessing over cursing, all the more poignant. Even without a past or even a present of having such a deep appreciation for clean water, which let's be honest, we take for granted here today, we understand James's point. And if you don't, the next illustration will help. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? Again, a question is asked, and a negative answer is expected. Here, the illustration of produce. A fig tree is called a fig tree because it produces figs. But more to James's point, a fig tree is called a fig tree because it only produces figs. It cannot produce figs and sometimes olives. Both, by the way, common trees in that region. In the same way, James continues, a vine, which is a grapevine, cannot produce figs. It only produces grapes. And then he closes with repeating the same principle from verse 11, salt water cannot produce fresh. It's very clear what he's saying. Let me summarize. The fruit is determined by the tree. The water is determined by the source. The speech is determined by the heart. We need to listen to our words. You cannot be both. Just like the spring, the tree and the vine can't do both. As Christians, we shouldn't. Evaluate your words. Listen to what you are saying. Gauge your heart. Because this is not just about the tongue, but about what your tongue represents. If your words are not godly, if they are not helpful, then it is because you are not walking rightly with the Lord. If your words are godly at times, but sinful at others, then it shows a doubleness with your view and walk with God. In other words, it is inconsistent. And the duality of your speech does not remain there. It reflects a duality in your heart. You are enjoying His grace. You are enjoying His provision. You are enjoying His blessing. So you worship Him. You bless Him. But you are also letting the sin of your heart and the pressures of the world, the norms of society, dictate how you speak at other times, whether at work, at home, with unbelieving friends, or wherever it may be. Our actual words may be motivated by some sort of Scripture. The slandering may be because of our morality regarding the issues at hand. And so we say, no, 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 I'm not like the world because though my words are bitter, it's because of my convictions from Scripture. But the way you are speaking and the heart that it comes from is just like the world. Bitter, angry, not trusting the sovereignty of God. God 
sits on his throne in heaven and chooses who sits on the thrones on earth. Do you believe that? What do your words reflect? The challenge is speaking bitter words, and again, you understand what I'm saying here, words of anger, insults, slander, gossip, all of those things. The challenge is those types of things are natural to us because we are sinners. And like with everything else that is natural to us because of our sin nature, if we don't strive, if we don't try, if we don't take the time to think and evaluate and know the Word, if we just let our instincts and natural desires come out of our mouths, then we will curse men. This is who we are. It, you, you've heard me say this before if you've been around. Any fool can criticize. You don't need to think to criticize someone. You don't need to actually take the time to evaluate anything to point out what's wrong with someone. We naturally do this. All it takes to be critical is to be alive. Just think about it. Just on your drive home this afternoon, evaluate the roads. You notice the potholes, you notice the puddles, you notice the flooding, you notice the downed trees, you notice Sam Trans still working on it, or what not Sam Trans, uh, Caltrans, right? You notice all the things that you don't like. That is natural to us. It takes effort. It takes tapping into the Holy Spirit and the power of God. It takes being led by Him, guided by Him, to not do what is instinctive, which is to point out all the problems. No one has a perfect church. No one has a perfect job. No one has perfect kids, a perfect wife. She may have convinced you to say that in public, but she is not perfect. Well, we think she's perfect. If you have the right attitude, you tell people, my job is the best job. It's the perfect job. Because it's attitude. And we look at those people and go, ah, you're just lucky. No. They're just not being themselves and going into their instincts and just criticizing everything and everyone. Making money is hard and painful and disgusting and uncomfortable. We don't like doing it. But it's all about perspective. Look around this room. I haven't even been in your workplaces. Some of you I have, and I, I know. I can just imagine the type of people you have to deal with, the type of clients. There's one person in here who's had to deal with my children as their teacher. That's not easy. It's hard work. But it's all about attitude. You see, like many of you, this past week our, pow our power was out because of Tuesday's high winds. I mean, this, here's, here's a side note. Here's a great example. I mean, you just drive down El Camino and Burlingame and San Mateo. You can complain or you can be blown away. I mean, did you... I mean, we've imagined it, but you've never actually seen until this week, the roots 
of those giant trees laid bare for us. It's amazing. God is amazing. One item falls over and an entire lane and sidewalk of El Camino are ripped up. That's powerful stuff. That's worshiping stuff. But because of those trees, our power was out. Ours was out for about 24 hours. And when we lost power a few years ago for a similar situation, I realized that flashlights just don't cut it, especially with young, often scared kids in the house. So I bought these lanterns that I guess people would use for camping that you can hold and it emanates light in all directions. You can put it on a countertop and it lights up the whole room. And so this past Tuesday night when it got dark, I would grab one of those lanterns I go about more at my normal nightly routine. And as I did that, I realized something interesting that some of you may have experienced as well. There was no power. It was nighttime, so it was dark. Because it was dark, because it was nighttime, I had a lantern in my hand. And so I walked around my house with that lantern knowing that I was holding a lantern, knowing that there was no power, knowing that it was nighttime, knowing that it was dark, which is why, again, I had the lantern, and yet every time I walked in a room, I instinctively flipped on the light switch. (laughs) Not with this hand, because it was holding a lantern, because it was nighttime, and I had no power, and it was dark. You see, we do silly things when we just let our instincts kick in. We do things that have no benefit whatsoever, like flipping a light switch when tens of thousands of people in your neighborhood are without electricity. And that's what happens to us with our speech. We know the facts. We know it's dark. We know we're holding a lantern. We know the Word of God. We know what is edifying. We know what is hurtful. We know what is holy. We know what is profane. But far too often, we don't spend the time to think and get our hearts right, and we just thoughtlessly flip the switch of sinful speech. So there I was with the lantern. And even though I had light from that lantern, probably because I had the lantern, I was more careful when I walked. I walked with caution making sure the light of the lantern shone upon anything, any part of the ground that I wanted to walk on before I took a step. And we have the Word of God that fittingly the psalmist calls a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and we should use it. Cautiously, carefully, with holy fear and a desire for everyone's safety and spiritual health, to use that lamp to guide our speech, making sure the light of that lamp shines wherever we are planning to speak. And all of those safety precautions I take when walking through my home are especially important when it is dark. And beloved, it is spiritually dark. But here's the thing. When it's dark outside, 
Without the light, it's dark inside as well. You are a sinner. It's dark outside. It's dark inside. But we have the light. May your tongue, may your words, may your speech reflect the light and only the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the privilege of speech. Thank you for the ultimate privilege of using that speech to bless you, to praise you, and secondarily to encourage and to build up your people. And thirdly, to share the truth with an unbelieving world. Father, help us to examine our hearts and then our words. Help us to be those who, though we are sinners, that our speech, because of our hearts, will more and more reflect only blessing and less of the cursing. Help us to examine our hearts and figure out why we are cursing some individuals, why we dislike some, why we say certain things. May we repent of those sins. And Lord, we know that when we do that, it will be reflected in our speech. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping together, to sing songs, to recite Scripture. But may that be the theme of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings, but always. As we reflect on the gospel, as we reflect on your goodness, as we reflect on who we are in Christ, and as we reflect on the privilege and possibilities of this small but powerful tool in our mouths, our tongues. Glorify yourself through our speech, Lord, in Jesus' name. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.